What you are about to hear is a lesson taught in the Baird and Born Essentials class. For more information, or to download all the resources made available in this class, click the link in the episode description or visit barrettandborn.com. And now, this week's Essentials class. Onward. Okay. <clears throat> Let's look at a couple verses in the scripture here because I said something last week and I got a couple logistical question, questions. <clears throat> and so let me do that. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 15 real quickly here. Uh, we're talking about the creed and so we're, this is where we began. We, I believe in God and this is that we have one God, the triune God. He is the Father. Uh, he is the source, the source of all things. Nothing, nothing is except it comes from our Father. He is almighty. That means he is sovereign. He is over all things. And he is the creator of heaven and earth. There is no thing that is that did not, was not created by him. Uh, and that is who we worship as God. We believe in Jesus Christ. This is uh, Jesus is our Savior. Christ meaning the anointed one. His only son. He is the son of the Father. We talked about the Trinity. <coughs> and he is also our Lord. We said he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the new Adam, the new man. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. So we had the God and the man. He's the firstborn of a new creation. Uh, he suffered. We talked about the necessity of Christ's suffering for our sakes under Pontius Pilate. We said uh, this is important because it actually puts it in a real date, in a real time. This isn't just a spiritual thing that he did, but it's a real thing that he did. And then last week we finished with he was crucified, died, and was buried. And this is what we, t- we discussed the some atonement theories and how Christ washes away our sin. And what we said was on the cross, say, uh, Christ defeats sin and Satan. <coughs> and I referenced this here Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if you're like me and you came from the same background that I came from, this is actually something that the, 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 the idea of Christ dying on Friday is, is something that I don't know how it happened, but of all the things that caused the churches to split away from each other, I understand churches have different understandings of justification or the meanings of baptism and some weightier things. Somewhere along the lines, we all started disagreeing on when Jesus died, and I don't know when it was. And so I referenced this three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then, of course, I did get the question of, how do you get three days and three nights out of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? So I just wanted to point to you why. I'm not trying to come in here and be a heretic, but uh, so let me just throw it at you. So let's uh, go to... uh, um, Mark chapter uh, 15. Now i got to see my notes here so I can see what I wrote down here. I already forgot the verse. Oh, 42. Here we go. Okay, so Jesus is on the cross here. <clears throat> and this is what we said here in verse uh, 42. And when the, even, in, when the evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, so the Sabbath would have been the last day of the week, which would have been Saturday. And Joseph of Arimathea came on what was known as the day of the preparation. So before they had to, before they could have the Passover, they had the preparation. They would have had for seven days removed all leaven from uh, their homes. They had to throw it out completely so that everything was unleavened. Okay, this is again looking forward to Christ who's dead and in the grave. And so they would have prepared that seven days ago. And then on the day of the preparation, it would have been uh, akin to what we see in the book of Exodus where they prepared the lamb and they were getting ready. And he says, eat it with your 
staff in your hand and your belts buckled and your shoes on. That's the day of the preparation. And so Joseph of Arimathea asked to take his body down on Friday so that his body wasn't up on Saturday, which it, they couldn't have done the work of taking his body down on Saturday, nor could they let his body be up there on Saturday. So he had to get it off. The day of the preparation is the primary reason why we say that. And so then you say, well, why is it that we say three days and three nights? <clears throat> One of the primary evidences that we can trust the, uh, the, the, the gospel accounts is that they aren't um, exactly uh, matching. If the four gospel accounts matched each other exactly, uh, that is signs of collusion. That's signs of, well, how did all four of these guys say the exact same thing, exact same time, everything matches. And the fact that it doesn't shows that it's likely that these are four independent sources who may have borrowed from one another um, and possibly even a fifth source, but they, they all are giving evidence that they saw these things. And if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll see things like the phrase after the third day or um, at the beginning of the third day, or you'll see... Um, uh, before the dawning of the third day. And so all of those sound a little different. The question is, well, how do you get three days and three nights? The point that we're trying to get here is that it's not necessary that you have to squeeze in three exact days, three exact nights to get to this. The idea is Christ died, was buried, and that he rose, and that it's three days and three nights here. A lot of times also, if you and I were to read a story in the I'm trying to to think of a newspaper that you would trust. I can't think of one. I know whatever I said, you'd be like, I wouldn't trust that anyway. But if we read a story in, in 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 a magazine article or a news article, a lot of times, you know how it'll say like, you know, it'll say like New York dash on Saturday, the 4th of September at 3 a.m. X happened. It's very, it's very important to say that. You go to court and we'll be back and forth and we'll be like, well, this guy sent this email at this time, but it showed evidence because it showed this email at this time three days before, and that proves that he had knowledge and intent, blah, blah, blah. They didn't necessarily write that in the Hebrew scriptures. They would say things that would, that would say, you know, uh, 100,000 people were killed. Was 100,000 people killed? I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit gave them, you know, a divine understanding and they knew the exact number. But they might have written that number to make a point that it was a very significant amount of people who died or that the entire city died, but it might not necessarily. So we don't, we don't defend the inerrancy of Scripture or the infallibility of Scripture by things like that. So if you see something like this, you don't have to feel like, oh, no. Or if you read the Bible and you're like, the day of the preparation, oh, no, I thought it was three days and three nights. My whole faith is shaken. We, don't, we, we, don't, we have not used that as a kind of a foundation of our faith anyway, so it's okay that that's not a thing. But uh, so there's that. Um, <clears throat> there's also another passage. Let me see which one I wrote down. I think it's in John, but I want to re- reference this before we went forward. It's in, uh, oh yeah, John 19 says the same thing. Be, before, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, uh, the Jews asked that Pilate, uh, might, that their legs might be broken so that they would take it away. So that was one of the, that was one of the reasons there. Take the body away before we get to the Sabbath day. That's John uh, nineteen thirty one. I won't turn there because I just read it. But that's an idea. So if anybody was like, I'm unable to focus until you figure this thing out for me first, that's why. Uh, but again, what the thing is that's most important is what Jesus is doing here. So that's where we're gonna that's what we're gonna focus on. Okay. So <clears throat> Matthew, I'm gonna bounce around the Bible here to show you what we're talking about today because uh, what Jesus does in the grave is probably the thing that we skip over the the most. 
We go from cross to resurrection. Don't get me wrong. Two absolutely great things. By the way, do you guys know Patch the Pirate? Yes. <laughs> Patch the Pirate? Yes. Ron Hamilton. Ron Hamilton? Man, I'll tell you what. I listened to him for like two hours this morning. That's a complete aside. But he just, his music just really, it's good. Anyway, all right. Absolutely nothing. Okay. I, he, I was thinking of the songs I was listening to about the resurrection and the, and the crucifixion, and I just wanted to pause and say, if you are looking for really good music, music that you'll never come to class and Jeremy makes fun of, Ron Hamilton's one of them. Okay. Friday, okay. Jesus dies on the cross, and we said it. When Jesus dies on the cross, he conquers sin and Satan, because Satan has, Hebrews tells us that Satan has power over us, the power that he has over us is the fear of death. Uh, and so our sins are in some way a, a, a it's like a, a thirsty person drinking salt water. It, it's, a, it's a continual drink that we take to avoid death. And what it's doing is it's actually killing us more. And so Satan has this power over us because we have a fear of death. And when we have a fear of death, what we do is we take these uh, lesser goods, which are actually evils. And then what we do is we do those things to avoid ultimate death. And it's anything from like, oh no, I'm scared I have to pay more in taxes, right? Because we actually serve money. So I'm going to do this little cheat, right? To avoid that. What's, what are we doing? We're sinning because we're scared of death because we have more of an allegiance to money than we do to Christ. And so what we do is we, we sin and Satan has that power over us. So on the cross, what Jesus does is he defeats Satan's uh, power over us because he dies an innocent man. He dies with all of our sin on him uh, and he dies uh, in our place, never having succumbed to sin. And so uh, he enters into a death that he, above all people, has no, he has no uh, reason to go into. He has no reason to go into death. And so he defeats Satan's power. He defeats sin. And he defeats the law's claim over us. Because the law says that the, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Right? And so when Christ dies on the cross... An innocent man has, for the guilty, died. And so sin then, he does this for all man. Sin then can't come to us and attack us and make that same claim on us because we point to Christ, our salvation, who took that from us. Then we go into Jesus going into the grave. And this is this phrase right here, he descended to the dead. This is, this is a really significant and awesome moment in our faith, but we kind of miss out on it uh, and it's a little bit muddied. And then we, we, we bounce on over to Sunday. So if you, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go there, but Matthew um, chapter 17, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I, I'm doing it off of my brain for some reason, and I didn't decide to come here with my actual notes this morning. Matthew chapter, oh yeah, 16, sorry, okay, 16, Jesus says in verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> now, in our English translations, they took all of the words that meant death and grave and uh, uh, condemnation, and they turned them into the word hell. Depending on which translation that you have, uh, they, they may have changed that. So sometimes you might have seen, especially in the Old Testament, you're reading it and you'll see the word Sheol. I don't know if you've ever seen that in the Old Testament. Okay. So the idea that, the, that, that, the, 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 that was developed by the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, is that um, <coughs> when you die, you go to the, the soul. Uh, it, it, it remains conscious, 
uh, but the soul goes to a place of death or the domain of death, which is the grave. Consider this, if you will, if we can make like a picture of it, a swampy, murky Dagobah. Star Wars. Okay, so if you don't know Star Wars, I'll, I'll keep explaining it. If you don't know Star Wars, Dagobah, okay? It's a swampy, murky, uh, um, it is a place that is without joy. It is a place that is without um, any sort of spark of life. It is a place of hopelessness. It's a place of chains. Um, think uh, 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 Jacob Marley. Okay, it's a place of bondage. It's a place of being brought down. It's heaviness. It's emptiness. It's without life because we humans were meant to be here and alive. And so it is. It is without joy. It, it's it, it's without happiness. It's without peace. Uh, and it's a place of suffering. And to those who are unrighteous, it is and it remains a place of torment. But it's it's Sheol or the grave. So Christ, <clears throat> when he dies. Christ goes into this place, and he uses this phrase here, the gates of hell. And so what the idea that they had was, is that Sheol or the grave is like a prison that is closed, and we're all stuck, we're all headed there, we're all going there, you can't get out of it. The gates itself lock you in from the inside. And we're all bound in our souls to go to this empty, hopeless place where we have lost our life, where God does not exist, where there is no joy, Uh, not there, there is no, there is no, they would, they would talk about it as if it was a place of, uh, no taste, no smell, no sound, dullness. Uh, it was just empty of anything that you in, uh, your life would think, oh, that's a nice thing. There's no breeze, right? It's where the soul goes and it's just, uh, a, a cavernous, swampy, murky, chained in death, right? That's where we go when we die. That was the idea. Now <clears throat> they thought of it. In three compartments. One, uh, there was the unrighteous. Okay, we're going to call them on R. The unrighteous people who, from the days of the beginning of time all the way through Noah, were disobedient to God, and they were down and they were in torment. Like, the, the, remember the rich man and raising up his eyes in the flames, he said? So there was the, there was the, there was the unrighteous. They said also there were uh, fallen angels that were chained. We're not going to go into this today. Uh, but if you read Peter, he talks about the angels that fell in the time of Noah, Genesis six, which gets real wacky if you ever want to go there for a while. But he said there was these fallen and condemned chained angels and they were down there and they're, they're being held. And the idea was if we know the demons that are walking around now, we have no idea the ones that God chained and said, I'm not even going to let you guys walk around. But anyway, and then you have what we know as Abraham's bosom or a place of rest. And this is the, the righteous dead. Okay. So uh, the idea, though, is that they're all down there because that's where souls go. That's where the dead have to go, and it's hopelessness. Now, the righteous dead have a little bit different uh, than the unrighteous dead, and that's they're comforted because they know that Messiah is coming. That's the, that's the one comfort they have in the land of the dead. Messiah is coming, and he'll free us. And then you get what we call uh, Holy Saturday. It's the day between the crucifixion and the day before the resurrection, and it's really awesome, and it has some amazing art, and I want to show it to you. So <coughs> the idea is this. Come on, let's roll. Oh, that's good. Man, you guys are going to love it when we get to it. <laughs> ah, ah, here we go. Okay, so this is so amazing. I love this so much. Bear with me. I love Christian art. I've told you this, so this is awesome. Okay, so the idea is this is the, what you see at the top is called the, the beatific vision. 
It is being in the presence of God, being in the presence of his, uh, uh, of his light, of his glory. Um, if you were to see it right now as a human being, it would kill you, right? And so the beatific vision is being in the presence of God. And we know that God is surrounded by the heavenly council. He's surrounded by the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim. And this painting is trying to say that Jesus Christ himself is the beatific vision. To see Christ our Savior is to see God. And what happens is you have in the domain of, uh, of the dead down here, everybody who's dead. And this here is the uh, unrighteous dead. Now, this is so cool. Here's why. Because in the painting of the unrighteous dead, they painted all the pictures of the gods that people worshipped. And they showing Jesus being victorious in his cross over them. So like, here's Zeus with his lightning bolt. And here's Baal, the cow. Um, it's so cool because what happens is when Jesus, when Jesus dies, when Jesus is victorious in his cross, remember the resurrection is not the victory of Christ. The resurrection is the vindication of what was done here. It is here that Jesus says it is finished, right? So Jesus says it is finished on here. And what we have is Jesus descends to the dead and he preaches that he is the one that was to come. He is the one that has been victorious and he is preaching to all the souls that are condemned that they remain condemned. And he is preaching to all the gods that have led astray the, uh, the, the condemned that the gods themselves are condemned. Which is why Paul says, if you eat meat that has been offered to idols, I'm not going to hold that against you. We know that those gods are nothing. They don't, they're not even real. It's, they're just dead. And so if you do it, that's fine. Now, don't offend your brother. But we know that these gods are real because our God is not arguing with other gods. There is no other God and Christ is victorious. So there's that one. And I think it's just really cool. You know, our movies, our movies are based on having really cool characters like this guy being the, the main character, right? Thor and stuff. And, and this painting is saying that in the eyes of the church and not in the eyes of the church only, but in reality, they are dwarfed in comparison to the real majesty and glory that is Christ in his crucifixion. Uh, and so um, that's Jesus. I like it. Uh, this next painting is uh, a picture of Christ stepping into the domain of the dead. And you can see, so what we have here is this is Adam and Eve. Okay. They have been in the domain of the dead and you see the souls around that are craving. This is the righteous dead, but they are in, uh, they are condemned. They are held by the gates of hell. They are chained in, they are locked in. And Jesus is walking in, in light, uh, victorious, preaching to them that they have been delivered, that they have been freed, that they are no longer in the bondage of this. And my favorite part of this picture is that Jesus's foot is on top of this skull on top of these serpents, and he's crushing and trampling down death by going into the grave. And so when Jesus goes into the grave, he's preaching to all of these here. To the righteous, he's preaching that you're freed. Okay? And when he goes into the grave, I think I have one more. Yeah, okay. So this is at the resurrection. You'll see this. What we have here is down here. These are the unrighteous dead. They're, they're bound in their chains. But these right here are the doors. That's the gates of hell. He's kicked them open. So the gates of hell, when Jesus tells Peter, when he tells the disciples, the gates of hell shall not prevail, it's because he's in his death, has kicked them open, and you and I can't be held by it anymore, okay? And what we have here is Jesus bringing out uh, 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 those that are the, the righteous dead, bringing them out and saying um, that you are freed from death. That I-C-X-C up there is Greek, and it means Jesus Christ conquers. And I just think that's awesome. Um, I would... 
I would tattoo this entire thing on my back, but <laughs> I, just abs- I just absolutely love it. Now, Revelation. You don't understand. I'd be standing in the mirror like, yeah, go Jesus. <laughs> All right. Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, excuse me, Revelation chapter 5. I'm in the wrong chapter again. Man, I'm doing really bad with where am I. Revelation chapter 1. John, the revelator, he is in exile on Patmos. And he says, I turned in verse 12. Man, if you haven't read Revelation, you should read it. It's really good. Don't try to understand it, just read it. And just read the parts, especially, just focus on the parts where Jesus does something really, really cool. And that, it's a great book. You should get in it. Verse 12, I turned in to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. His, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were the flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of death and hell. Now, that is when he took the keys of death and hell, right out of death's hands. And so when we say Jesus has the keys of death and hell, he has taken them right out of their hands. And we have the benefit here of saying <coughs> that Christ has conquered sin for us. He has conquered Satan for us. The law now has no more condemnation in us. But there's this pesky guy over here called death in the grave who still says, that's great, but I'm taking them. You can be forgiven all you want, but I'm still taking them. And Jesus, when he descends to the dead, he takes the keys and now he stands at the end of time to you and I saying, I have the keys to death and hell, so you, have no, you don't need to fear it. You're going to all walk through it. See, you and I are in this story. You and I are here, okay? This is where we are. Christ has already done this, but he's gone ahead of us to do this. We're, we, we are, so Satan has been conquered and death has been conquered and we're right here in the story. So we are coming here in the story knowing I have to pass through this place here, just like Jesus did. You and I are going to all pass through it. Some soon, some later, some, uh, uh, some through great suffering and some not. But we're all going to pass through this. But this is the confidence that we have. Not simply that our sins are forgiven, but that this guy who is holding us captive has no power for it. So I was going to, we were going on a trip with the kids to Wisconsin and we were doing one of those uh, Airbnbs. Um, and you basically pay somebody a lot of money far away to, to tell you that they're going to let you show up at your house and you're going to have a good weekend. And, and I'm a, I'm a real OCD about stuff. So I'm like, uh, what if, what if we get there and there's just rats all over this place? Right. Or what if the pictures are much more deceiving or what if the bathrooms don't work? Right. Because if you look at a picture and then you get in a place, you're like, look at all this mold here. And so I'm really nervous about it. And so we're driving and we got two cars going up with all the kids And I'm, I'm uh, texting like where I, you know, you, you know the, on the map where you are. And I notice that I'm ahead. I'm the car that's ahead. And I'm like 45 minutes ahead. Uh, and I'm doing just great on the expressway. And so <clears throat> I texted back to Samantha who had made all the plans. <clears throat> and I was like, I'm going to be there in about 30 minutes. 
do you have the information to this place? And so she looks up the information and I get this text. And when I get this text, in the text is a picture of the confirmation from the person who owns the property. And in that, he said, if you go to the side door, there's one of those realtor boxes. And the realtor box, the code is, you know, 1432. And when you open that, that'll be all the keys into the house. And so what, what I had in my possession was a knowledge that the keys were already bought and paid for. They were already set aside. And my entrance into this property was already assured. I had it. The keys were there. I know that I had them. The faith that we have, the confidence that we have, is not simply the confidence that God is no longer uh, uh, against us, that God, that we are no longer uh, not at peace with God or that we're enemies with God, but that there is nothing in this world, Paul tells us um, in Romans 8. Let's go to Romans 8 because it's awesome. In Romans 8. This is your confidence. Because Jesus has the keys of death and hell in his hands, and he has complete control over who, who goes there. Verse 31 of chapter 8 of Romans. <clears throat> what shall we say then to these things? What are these things? You can say anything. What do we say to fear? What do we say to the, the knowledge that death is coming? What do we say to the doctors? What do we say to our enemies? What do we say to a world that's falling apart? What do we say to sin? What do we say to a broken political system? What do we say to the fact that we don't know if we're going to go to war again? What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we also not with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us and who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered now no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is because when Christ descended to the dead, he took the keys of death and the grave. It cannot keep us. We must pass through. But because he died, because he descended, and because of what we'll discuss about Easter and the resurrection, you can have confidence in this thing that your bodily resurrection awaits just like his did. And that's what we say when we say that Christ uh, ascended, uh, descended to the grave. Now, a couple minutes left. I think there's a few verses that I want to reference here. <coughs> um, why do we say uh, that Jesus ascended? He descended to the dead means that he truly died and he entered into the place of the departed. That's what I want to read, Ephesians. I'm hitting you with a bunch of verses this week. Uh, so that you understand where we're going here. Ephesians 4, 9, and 10. Uh, Uh, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower region of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. It's it's important to see that when we say things like descended, this is constantly the, the, the motif of what Jesus is doing. He descends to become a man, He descends to become a servant. 
Philippians tells us, right? He's obedient. He descends even to the death of a cross, the Bible tells us. Uh, he descends into death. Why is it? We said this at the beginning of this class. It's because Christ is coming through and passing through all that we have to pass through so that he might gather us up into himself and be with him so that we might too be resurrected like he was resurrected. Okay. Does that make sense? I don't want to talk about the resurrection today because I, we don't have, we don't, I got four, I got five minutes and I just can't, I'll get too excited and I'll keep you here too long. Uh, but we're going to talk about next week because this whole story is really important. The, uh, I mean, obviously, right? Uh, <laughs> what? Big shock we learned in class today. The resurrection is important. So what, we, so what we see here is that we have Friday and Saturday and Sunday. We have the death of Christ. We have the descent of Christ into the grave. We obviously know the resurrection. Uh, spoiler. And then we're going to talk about how he ascended into heaven, uh, how he is seated, that's a chair, at the right hand of God the Father uh, Almighty. And I don't have a good symbol for prayer. Uh, I don't know. He's, he's praying. Okay? Uh, this is what he's doing right now. Um, and then that he will, the final one is that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So this is the full story of Jesus. He's crucified, he died and buried, he rose again, he ascended to the, to the Father. We're going to talk about the importance of the ascension, because once we get to Easter, we kind of all go into summer mode and we start going on vacation and we, we forget about the ascension. Ascension is really important. And what does it mean that we say he's seated on the right hand of the Father, that he's ever living to make intercession for us, and then what does it mean that we say that he's, he will come again to judge the living and dead? So this is the whole, we're spending a lot of time on this, but this is the whole second article uh, of the creed that we're studying when we understand what it is that Jesus did so that we can understand what Jesus has given to us so we can uh, more fully uh, rejoice and, and give thanks to him for that. Any questions about this? Comments? Now, I get up. The reason I started the class was because people had comments. They just didn't tell me till afterwards. You could say it. That's all right. That's a nice chair. Is it, isn't it? I was going to draw a crown, but I thought it would take longer, but that's a chair. It's, and it's facing to the right. Okay, let's let's. Uh, <coughs> Next week I'll have more art for you. We talk about what it means when we say that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, you you probably get the gist of it, but we'll just reinforce it. <laughs>